0: Welcome to Office Hours, a podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Marsha Chatlin, and the concept is simple. Each week, one professor, me, and one student, lots of conversation. Office Hours, for the things we don't talk about in class. Today on the podcast, I talked to recent college graduate, Bill DeLaRosa, about families and the struggle along the border. Hi, Bill. Hi, Marsha. How are you?
1: I'm doing well. How are you?
0: How's it going? It's
1: going well. It's it's quite hot here in D.C. and humid, As not someone, like Arizona. I
0: know. This, like, lie about dry heat, yeah. I don't buy it because it's still awful when yeah. you're in any kind of heat, it's, yeah. um, but you're just more dehydrated in Arizona. Um, how does it feel like graduating college? It feels, like, surreal and, and unrealistic,
1: you know, starting my internship here in D.C. when people ask me, so, are you still in school? And I have to say, no, I'm not actually I just graduated a few weeks ago or last week. Um, that that felt very weird and strange because I'm I wasn't used to saying that, but also thinking about the fact that I'm saying that and, and what that means, you know, for myself and my family and yeah and really the significance behind behind that statement about being a college graduate being a college graduate yeah and saying that and and, and it just sounds so unrealistic
0: yeah. Gosh, I'm going to already start crying in this interview. (laughs) We're going to try to get the three minutes. Um, So there's a lot of reasons why I wanted to um, interview you on the podcast, but the first one I want to know, what is it like growing up in Tucson and then going to a small liberal arts college in Maine? You just graduated from Bowdoin College. Um, What is that like? It was strange.
1: Um, You know, I'm from from South Tucson, which is like the poorest side, or one of the poorest cities uh, in Arizona, and... And growing up in that area, um, it was, you know, I was surrounded by poverty. People from my, from similar backgrounds, Hispanic, and specifically Mexican, um, and who had never, you know, traveled beyond Tucson, beyond South Tucson, um, beyond Arizona. And so uh, that's what I grew up with, and that's what I got to know really, really well. Uh, You know, the high school that I went to, Pueblo uh, Magnet High School, was a high school that was ninety nine percent Mexican, yeah. um, and most mainly everyone at that school was probably beneath the poverty line, and then and then mostly everyone um, didn't end up going to college, mm-hmm. right? And those that did went to a local community college or the University of Arizona, and so going out of state was also out of the norm, um, and so going from from that place, my neighborhood where I grew up to a place like Bowden was. Shocking, and
0: it's um. I interview. I've interviewed a student from Miami on mm-hmm. the podcast, and she's like, "When I got to Georgetown, I didn't understand why people didn't speak Spanish. Yeah. Like even just the kind of context of what people do was weird. And then I've um. I interviewed someone else who grew up poor in Maine, mm-hmm. and the idea of going to a school like Bates or Bowdoin just seemed like way out of reach. And so sometimes it's about physical distance, and some, so much of it is a social and ideological distance. Yeah, it is. So, yeah. how did you end up there? Well,
1: you know, a lot of it was probably chance and the opportunities that I've had along the way, but um, I started off with QuestBridge, and I went to uh, Stanford, on, on, on a, there's, a, there's a college conference where they invite multiple uh, representatives from different colleges to come and speak, to students, and that was the summer before senior year.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and that's where I heard of it, and I heard it was in Maine. And as soon as I heard that, I said, "You know, that's that's not happening." I'm not about now, that's, that. That's, that's yeah, <laughs> definitely. And um, later on, though, in the fall semester, I, I was also part of this program called STEP, the Student Expedition Program. And what they do is they take first generation, um, first generation students in Arizona, um, and they put them through a college prep, uh, program. Um, And there's a lot of college mentoring and counseling along the way. And so the director of the program, she sort of had a liberal arts uh, education background. And she she had heard of Bowdoin, and she had organized a meeting with a Bowdoin representative in Tucson. And so um, she went ahead and organized this, and she said, Bill, I want you to come and listen to this Bowdoin College rep uh, speak speak to um, the students, and I said, no, you know what, I've actually, I've heard of Bowdoin, I know where it's at, I'm not going to go, <laughs> yeah. you know, after a lot of pushback, I ended up going to this meeting at the downtown library, and it turns out that um, it was the same person that I had met at Stanford um, a few months before that, um, and we connected more on a more personal level, and she had told me that there, that Bowdoin had a multicultural sort of flying program, where if you apply, um, and they accept you, they will fly you up to Bowdoin with a group of students, um, for three days and all expenses, all expenses paid. You get to speak to the students, visit the classrooms, uh, sort of live the student life at Bowen for three days.
0: How many times had you been outside of Arizona at that point?
1: Uh, maybe once or twice. I, I had, you know, well my mom lives in Mexico so I travel to Mexico pretty often and then um, part of that, that STEP program part I was going of, to Stanford. Was going to Stanford, and then also they they do like a expedition component, and I so see. they take us to Alaska to put us in a very foreign environment, <laughs> um, uh-huh. and and sort of get that experience. And I was fortunate that I was a part of this and got to visit mm-hmm. Alaska. Um, but next thing, you know I'm going to Bowden on this you know three day experience, um, and uh, by myself flying on a plane, and that was that was weird, and and um, uh, that's where I That's when I visited Bowden for the first time, and then after that, I said, uh, "You know, what, I could really see myself here, and I'm not. I'm going to play my cards right, and I'm going to go ahead and apply. I'm going to apply ED Early Decision, and to just increase my chances and see wh- where uh, where this goes."
0: And so, you get on the plane and then you go for college. Yes. What is the first week like for you? Well, the first
1: week was just. I think that was probably one of the toughest weeks at Bowden because. Bowdoin has uh, my year was the first year they did—they uh, they mandated that every student partake in the pre-orientation trips. And these are trips, you know, they're, they're expedition trips, outdoor trips, there's volunteering trips. And the trip that I was a part of, and this is before classes begin, before orientation week begins, I was part of uh, a trip called Aziz Valley, where we get to um, canoe, uh, raft, and hike. And it sounds very fun, and so I signed up for it. And I had done this sort of expedition in Alaska, mm-hmm. which I thought I was like, this is you know three weeks versus three days, piece of cake, I can do that. But when I when I went there, uh, you know those three days were very long because I was the only um, uh, Hispanic first generation student from Arizona. Everyone was from Massachusetts, Connecticut, Maine um vermont and and for some reason they all knew each other beforehand like they how did they all know each <laughs> other <from>, like <laughs> swimming camps or oh, Jesus. those 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 types of things and and so I was definitely i felt like like an outsider um within within uh during those three days um and you know that was that was essentially my first week and then going back to campus and really trying to find my niche and someone I can talk to um, trying to assimilate or integrate uh, with within um, the Bowdoin community. Um, but it was definitely rough and I, I question um, more than often uh, sort of why I had made this pick.
0: Yeah. And did you, were there any moments you were thinking, okay, I'm getting on a plane to Arizona and I'm just going to go to school out there?
1: Yes, and, and I thought about that um, on multiple occasions. Uh, emotionally, psychologically, academically um, but also because of this sort of family situation that I was dealing with um, that I'm still dealing with and and I thought that, that there were several there were several instances where I said or I had already spoken to the Dean's I had already spoken to the counseling center where I said you know what um, I think you know I'm gonna start looking seriously into the process of transferring somewhere else uh, and really see how that looks like because uh, there's a strong chance that I can't stay here, um, for 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 reasons that are that were beyond my my control.
0: I think that the story that you're telling me is so it's so powerful because it is both so complicated but so common but mm-hmm. no one talks about it. Yes, I've had classes where several students were dealing with stuff back home that they felt like they should be part of dealing with and a lot of it centers around immigration and detention and this is something that has increased throughout my career when i first started teaching i remember the first time a student said that she was afraid that a family member was going to be deported i was working in oklahoma and they had come up with these you know these ridiculous laws where they try to deputize everyone to become an ice officer essentially and they say well if you know someone's undocumented you have to turn them in Um, And I remember a student being so anxious about um, deportation, Mm -hmm. and I thought, oh, this is kind of strange. And now in my career, the number of students who are struggling with parents in detention Mm -hmm. or or families with mixed status Mm -hmm. is now so commonplace. And so part of what was pulling you toward Arizona was the situation with your mom. Can you tell us a little bit about what happened? Absolutely,
1: yeah. So my mom was actually undocumented in the U.S., um for the most part of my life uh in October 2009 is when she she really tried to do things the right way and she had married my my father my father is a US citizen naturalized naturalized US citizen I have uh, you know myself I have an, I have uh, and three siblings who so are all US citizens and so she thought that um there was a viable chance of her becoming uh, a legal permanent resident and she went through the process we hired an attorney um and, and the law stipulates that if you're married to a U.S. citizen, um, or if you have a child um, who is also a U.S. citizen and is, and is um, 21 year twenty one years old or older, either of them can petition you to become an LPR, a legal permanent resident um, uh, holder, a green card uh, status. And um, she thought that was the case, and so my dad petitioned her, her appointments were set up in Juarez, mm-hmm. uh, because when you apply from for, for this, you need to apply from your host, home country. So this meant that she had to leave the country, she had to leave the U.S. to apply um, to, go, to go to her interview in Mexico. And, and that process was actually, um, there was a catch-22, because of, in ninety six there was a law that was passed that said, yes, this is possible, but for people that have that are applying from within the U.S., if they have been undocumented, for a certain length of time, um, then by leaving the country and applying for this, they're going to be barred um, for an X number of years. And it's three years if if you are in the U.S. Uh, without papers for more than six months but less than a year, and it's ten years if you're in the U.S. for more than a year, undocumented. My mom had in fact been in the U.S. more than a year, undocumented, and so she was barred for ten years and she had no idea that this was going to happen. Actually today you know immigration lawyers advise their clients not to go to these things because they're self defeating um, and and now there's actually a waiver where you know families can apply for it and they'll know ahead of time if they're going to be barred or not back then there wasn't that um, so my mom ends up being barred in october 2009 for 10 years and and um, she tries to appeal the process uh, appeals are almost impossible and that didn't go through my father my father, you know, today he's 83, back then he was in his high 70s, uh, but my father is very old and he's gone through, so, uh, you know, multiple, um, you know, health issues. Uh, you know, after my mom was barred for from the U.S. from her home and her family, um, a few years later my dad gets a stroke um, and, and really his health is just declining. But, you know, my mom, there's still this issue where my mom can't come back to the U.S. And so um, that's that's what I was dealing with uh, throughout high school and college, both taking care of my siblings and my dad, who's aging and and um, very sick and really requires professional help. Um, and my older brother, actually, because um, I have an older brother named Jim, when my mom left, you know, our, our household, um, uh, experience a, a blow in our income, um, and so Jim ended up joining the marines and to try to provide some sort of stable income to our family um, and and really i became I became both the nurse, uh, the cook, the mother, and all that stuff for my siblings, my younger siblings my My little brother was four at that time, and my sister was nine um,
0: and While all of this is going on. You're in high school. I'm in high school, yeah. Who at school is helping you?
1: You know, many people didn't know, uh, to begin with, um, uh, that this had happened. I think little by little, teachers started catching on, and and my counselors. and Because, you know, I would show up to parent-teacher conferences by myself. um, And that's when people started asking, like, Bill, where are your parents? I remember one instance that following Thanksgiving after October, when my mother was barred, you know, they they asked us, you know, they asked me, Bill, what are you doing for this Thanksgiving? And I said, I actually had no I no idea. Um, I might, no, I don't know, I, I have actually no idea, and I can't remember what I said. And I remember um, it was at that point where one of my teachers, uh, uh, Miss Wilson, she said, she began to question, like, okay, if something is going on, and that's when words started spreading among just my teachers and counselor. I just decided to keep it quiet, um... Even among my peers, that this that this did was going on. Did your friends on.
0: not know what was happening?
1: Only my, I would say, at the most, two or three friends. I just kept it really, really.
0: And why close. did you feel like you had to keep it quiet?
1: Well, I think, um, I I did. I definitely didn't want, um, you know, pe- people to feel sorry for me to mm-hmm. some extent. I didn't want, um, uh, you know, people just going out of their way because of the situation that I was in, my family was in. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wanted to prove, you know, uh, prove others wrong um, uh, about sort of the, the statistics and what, 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 what was out there. Um, and I also didn't want, you know, when that happened, my mom was distraught.
0: Um,
1: mm-hmm. um, and the fact that she can't come back to the U.S. for 10 years... It seemed really absolute. There was some hope, but, but needless to say, you know, she was lacking a lot of that. I had to really remain the strong one, because um, how I tell others, if if my hope um, vanished, then then that little hope that my mom had would also vanish, and so I really had to embody um, and by, uh, that strong personality, and also and by doing that, that required me not to expose myself, make myself vulnerable.
0: Looking back, do you think do you think you would have handled the situation the same way?
1: No, because you know junior year, senior year is when I said I can't do this anymore, uh, and that's when I began to uh, reach out to community members, um, not my not my high school peers, but definitely you know local churches and um, uh, for them to just give me a hand, and and uh, and that's when I saw the big difference. Um, you know, meals were delivered at my home, um, and that really made it a lot easier for me. You know, I think, I, I also think my sibling son, my dad was, were getting they tired. Appreciated. They appreciated They were getting tired of my cooking, right? Um.
0: <laughs> and so, in this moment where you're taking over the household, did you know how to do any of this stuff before?
1: <sighs> Not really. Um, yeah. Very basic stuff. Um, yeah, a lot of it was just me looking at the internet and learning as I went, um, calling my mom on the phone and. And getting her advice, um, and a lot of it was just you know what 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 a college student would do I think um, or uh, someone in a, in a similar situation go out to the grocery store and buy frozen food um, mm-hmm. that could just be cooked in the oven, and and you know stuff like that. Um,
0: and how did you keep up with your schoolwork under all of this emotional stress? Yeah.
1: I really had to I think prioritize. Um, uh, really micromanaged. It was um, It was first um, going to school, uh, after school coming straight home, and then looking after my dad, uh, picking up my siblings from from their schools, um, making sure that they're doing their homework, and then making sure that the food was on the table, and then putting them to sleep. And so once that was all taken care of and, and their needs, uh, then I would have time to, to study in my room. So I would... I would say, like, I was, a, I was a, an owl, or, yeah. you know, 10 o'clock. It's when I would start doing homework and doing all that stuff. Um, and early mornings um, were sort of the pattern that I fell, fell.
0: And so having had this kind of experience of responsibility, which um, even in kind of hearing stories of kids who take on a lot, this is probably the most that I've ever heard, mm-hmm. really, in terms of just the number of things you were handling. Then you go to a college... Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's so hard, I think, for a lot of first-generation students or students who have complicated home lives is that so much of the college experience is marketed as, like, carefree, do whatever you want, drink, stay up late. Like, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. And meanwhile, you're like, what are you talking about? Like, I have these ties. How did you even relate to your peers at school initially? I
1: think that was one of the most difficult things, too, because, um, you know, I remember... Uh, you know, one of my roommates, my first year, was definitely from a different background, um, the opposite background of where I was from, and and we just had different outlooks on life, and and our own, you know, how we went about our own chores, and I I saw how, you know, I I didn't have anyone to call home for to ask for advice when I came to choosing classes, and doing all that stuff, even you know dressing for an interview or those things, and and my roommate was that person who. We did have those resources and could always just call his dad and and ask, you know, how do I do this? How do I do that? What what should I do? How what how should I introduce myself? Those kinds of things. But it was also difficult because you know as far as the parties that you mentioned, uh, students couldn't understand why I didn't want to go to those things, um, and and that that just wasn't freshman year. That was all four years of college. Um, you know, senior year was, Bill just take a break, like, go out. Um, uh, enjoy yourself um and so but I it was it felt weird because I, I did end up going out a few times but I felt again you know some people talk about this and I didn't fourth year it was really you know feeling like the outsider within uh, uh, how I you know I was very much a part of this community but still outside the bubble um and I I it was like you know Watching people engage with each other from a very objective point of view, you know, that fly on the wall, it just that's how I felt um, as people navigated um, those spaces. And I didn't feel, I didn't feel, um, you know, quite comfortable. And so many times I'd leave early um, and go do other things. Um, but it was difficult, it was very um, challenging, especially, you know, freshman, uh, first year, and sophomore year.
0: And how did you, I mean, I mean, what? impact did all of this have on your mental health through college, because, it, because there's enough for you to feel overwhelmed, and then you're in a very cold place. So I'm sure this, I don't know if you struggled with seasonal affective disorder, but there must have been kind of some struggle when, when it got cold. Yeah. And so having those experiences, how did you mm-hmm. confront those challenges?
1: You know, it was, it was both when it got cold and also the winter up in Maine. You know, there's hardly any light. It's terrible. And so uh, there were times where I would wake up. Um, the sun is not out yet. I'd go to class. And if I had, you know, on days where I had classes from 11 till 4, um, by the time I'm out of class, it's already dark. And so that was depressing and, and, and very difficult. Um, you know, you do get depressed. And it is, it is such a thing that people feel... It, fortunately my first year the the winter was mild compared to others, um, but sophomore year was really when I reached out, um, and and it's something very similar happened between high school and college right not reaching out um, for help until the very end, um, but it was sophomore year where um, I I said I'd, I need help and it was because. You know, sophomore year was my when Jim, my older brother was deployed. Um, and so, whereas in the past, he had been stationed in Camp Pendleton in San Diego, California. He had um, uh, the liberty and the opportunity to, to drive back home and check on everyone once in a while. And that kept, me, that kept me at ease. All of a sudden he gets deployed and we lose communication. There's not that physical presence. So fall semester sophomore year, is really me worrying about what's, what's really happening. Um, back home and being in two places at the same time. And both, you know, the courses that I was taking were challenging. Um, and, you know, one really my grades were slipping and um, really, really um, to the point where I had a petition to withdraw a class. And I, I went through that process and I, I sought counseling and, you know, I, I felt to some extent, you know, worrying about my, my siblings and what they were eating Right, Because my little sister was who filled the shoes after I left, and she was 9 when my mom left, so she must have been maybe 11, 12 at that time. Um, and, and I knew she was the one doing the cooking and doing all that stuff, and I was really worrying about what, what, what they were eating, um, well, my little brother, how, how, what he was getting. Um, and I, I began to feel, you know, uh, guilty, um, that Bowdoin, um, a place that serves great dining food.
0: Well, it's weird. <laughs> if you don't grow up with, like, a lot, and then you go to a buffet every day, it feels very yeah. weird. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I by no means did I grow up with the same challenges as you did, but we didn't have money for, like, right. endless groceries. Right. Who has it? I remember you'd go to a your, your friend's right. house who had junk food, and it was like, oh, my mm-hmm. God, these mm-hmm. people buy chips? Like, yeah. This is yeah. Amazing. They must be rich. Right. <laughs> Never had right. chips, right? We had food, but not in those quantities, Exactly. Right? And so when you go to college and there's just so much food being wasted, it feels like a crime.
1: Yeah. And there was a lot of food of that. And I knew I was getting three meals a day. And very good food, and so I, I, it was a all those feelings combined that yeah. really kind of funneled, funneled, and I was, you know, they're all sort of I was very much inculcating all those things at once, and I fortunately I was able to peel that class and got that out, out of my sh- off my shoulders. Um, but it was you know there were several times like that. Now never mind the times that uh, my father, you know. Would end up at the hospital, and I would have to fly back home. Um, to
0: how often were you flying back home during the school year?
1: Um, during the school year, at least three times, probably. How um, did you
0: find the money to fly?
1: Fortunately, I was um, Bowden. Really supported me throughout this process, uh-huh. and so they had sort of like an emergency fund. Excellent. That they provided, um, and and that really helped me. Um, and and it really worked with me, I think.
0: And so, you're going through all of this. Mm-hmm. How do you talk to your friends at college about this, or, or were you able to?
1: Uh, just a few, mm-hmm. but you know, I really wasn't um, outspoken on this because I knew that at you know the very bottom point, um, the uh, the bottom line was that um, the way I saw it, that me talking to this person about this issue wasn't going to solve anything, um, and so that's that's how I saw it and. I I knew it would, in retrospect it would have been helpful for me yeah. to just talk to someone about this, but I knew that conditions back home were still the same. I knew that my mom was still in, alone in Mexico, and 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 it was my little sister both with dealing with schoolwork, my dad who's old and old people can get quite impatient and rowdy, um, my little brother and you know him he, he was also another story because you know he was attending school he was very much teased all the time so I was receiving all the calls from his principal and his teachers and, and how he was dealing with my mom's separation mm-hmm. and all that stuff um, and so it was again very difficult um, um, navigating
0: all those things at once. And so one of the things that's so interesting about kind of the time that you're in college is that you also are attending college at one of the key moments in conversations about racial justice yeah. and incarceration and detention and so many young people are incredibly engaged mm-hmm. in all of these justice questions and in many ways you're living them. Mm-hmm. And so how did I mean how did you also kind of think about um your presence on campus as a student of color, and I know that you have talked about some of the challenges about racism on your campus. Yeah. So, in many ways, you're experiencing the kind of personal racist experience and then also a structural mm-hmm. kind of inequality. And you're, I mean, you're so even tempered, <laughs> you're just such an even person <laughs> that I, I, I don't imagine you like going off on someone, but how, I mean, like. How does that then feel to be in that environment while all of these kind of things are happening?
1: It was challenging because um, what was challenging was living in two moments at the same time. Mm. One, I had, had this very pressing um, um, uh, thing going on back home that I really had to focus on my energy and time and and even you know why I was at Bowdoin was because of them right and the idea was I was going to go there get my stuff done and then go back and help them um so I was devoting I was devoting almost all my attention to them um but then all of this stuff is happening and and really finding the balance between the two was was difficult um and needless to say you know um it, you know my something my mom always told me and my dad was when you go there, uh, actually wherever you know space you enter, just keep your head down and you know don't don't ask questions, um, don't don't stir up the pot, um, and and just just finish and, and uh, come back in one piece. And so that was that was my experience, um, uh, first year, sophomore year, and junior year. Um, well, junior year is when I became started becoming more vocal, but but um, first year and sophomore year. You know, things were already happening mm-hmm. around the nation. They were happening on campus. Uh, I remember those first two years, there was this party that was held um, back at my school, back at Bowdoin, where the lacrosse team, uh, they lived at, uh, at a place called Crack House. It's an off-campus built um, housing. Um, and I'm Is a, it called that, or do they call it's, it it's a, it's a It's a nickname that was attached to it. I'm not sure, actually, I don't know where it comes from, but... That's essentially something racist. Something, I mean, like we yeah. don't we yeah, don't need yeah, yeah, to yeah. know the origin story, but we know it's something terrible that like, continues. Right. And so they, they would hold this annual event called Cracksgiving that happened during Thanksgiving or near Thanksgiving where people So they
0: made more racist already yeah. racist holiday, but continue, right. sorry.
1: Right. And so <laughs> so people would dress up as pilgrims and Native Americans. And that happened uh, my first two years, and it had already happened before that too. And people were already having the conversations why that was not okay. Um, but throughout the four years, you start, all of a sudden you start. I think what I was feeling, other students were also feeling, right? That, and what we've been told, we were also um, trying to resist that, right? Keep your head down. Don't question anything. Um, but you, what you start seeing is that starting sophomore year and then junior year, people would be, start becoming more vocal, and they've had enough of this. Um, and so, educational sessions are being held, people are being reprimanded, um, and and the lacrosse team does it again sophomore year, more educational sessions are held, um, and so it was, it was more like a slap in the face, right? Um, junior year, um, I think was the last year to happen, but then my senior year, um, fall semester, uh, this time it was the sailing team that did something wrong and they actually had a, a themed gangster and rap party.
0: Good, because you know what? It can't just be like you can't... Right, right. it can't just be Because no wonder- one can control themselves. Right. No matter how many times these parties yep. get blown up on Facebook and on Twitter, mm-hmm. and everyone calls, like, everyone makes it really clear just how racist right. and terrible you are. Right. It's like, you know what? I'm going to have a party. Let me make sure to just go deep, deep dive right back in there.
1: Right, exactly. And so, um, you know, people, they were uh, cornrows, they... They do all that stuff, and what they do, you know, they, they take it from the apartment that where it was happening, and they take it outside, mm-hmm. where, where the public space is, and and it was a weekend where um, students from multicultural backgrounds were visiting. Wait a second,
0: You mean outside, like outside outdoors.
1: They took it. They took it from 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 inside to uh, the dining hall where. Um, Wait, what? Yeah, we're we're students. Wait, wait, time (laughs) out. I've got so many questions. (laughs)
0: They did this in the dining hall of the college? It's
1: it's sort of like, Bowdoin has this thing called Super Snacks, uh, where um, they essentially offer food at late hours, uh, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday night, Uh, you know, from starting around 10 till 1 in the morning. Okay. Um, This is a
0: university property.
1: Yeah. Yes. And so they went from the apartment to one of these dining spaces. Where everyone is cohabiting, you know, living and engaging so with each like other. So it's like we're not
0: just going to be racist in this private space. We're going to try to make as hostile of an environment yeah. for as many people as possible, right. including the workers, probably. The
1: workers, and
0: then also you know students were visiting, high school oh, students God. were visiting,
1: and that was their that was her first impression of Bowdoin, right? That that was the same program that I was on when I visited Bowdoin, Jesus. and and after that, uh, and the our our senior year was when we got a new president, uh, President Rose, uh, uh, who had a sociological background, and was very outspoken on these things. He sent emails, you know, issued, you know, all that stuff that happened. Um, And and at that point, people are just a lot more vocal than before. Um, Students that would otherwise would not share their experiences are entering these spaces where they're being vocal and sharing, you know, know, I was called a wetback when I crossed the street this one time. Um, This person threw a bottle at me this other day. and so now you have an environment where people are starting to realize what, what is going on. Um, spring semester comes and by that time you think that students have learned you know their lesson and, and really understand why that was wrong. Um, but then now uh, a tequila party is held.
0: Wait, so no yeah. one got the memo the first nine hundred times.
1: Uh, honestly, I don't think they did. Oh, um, Jesus. And and it wasn't just a tequila theme party. What essentially? Of course,
0: because it was not a tequila right. tasting in which people understood the fine <laughs> nuances
1: of this beautiful right, liquor. Because
0: right. no one does that.
1: Right. Exactly. And what what ended up happening was, it was it was a Mexican theme party. Oh. That's what it was. And and um, but, and so going back to, where I was coming from, you know freshman and sophomore year where I, I wasn't really challenging um, uh, what was happening until senior year uh, until the junior senior year um, was because you know and at that at that point I had I had no idea that that the president of the of the Bowdoin student government at the time, um, partook in that event in the the giving the very you know the, that first instance and dressed I didn't even know there was a costume called this dressed as the trail of tears
0: oh god yeah. it gets
1: worse right and so I found out I didn't know about that my first mm-hmm. two years and and the fact that she was just forced to you know make an issue of public apology and do all that stuff and attendee sessions and really no consequence no consequences for the president of the student body mm-hmm. uh, were put in place I, I found unacceptable, and I found that out senior year, Mm -hmm. after the tequila party. And I found that out after two Bowdoin students um, were essentially, were also part of the tequila party. They were involved. I didn't know, at that time, I didn't know in in what capacity they were involved. Um, But I wasn't going to have it this time. Um, I was a senior. um, I was on my way out. Um, By that time, I had Gained some, some, you know, some respect um, among my peers and my my professors and mentors, and so I, I was going to use that to leverage um, uh, as a leverage to to really uh, say why this is wrong, and and I wasn't going to let the two students just walk freely from from what they did, especially when the semester before the Bowdoin student government had actually issued a statement of solidarity. For the Gangster and Rap Party, where they issued, they outlined and said things like, um, you know, we're gonna hold each other accountable. Uh, uh, this is the definition we're, we're adopting for cultural appropriation. This is, you know, every bullet by bullet. Um, and I found that hypocritical and contradictory to the actions they took a few months later for the Tequila Party. And all this while, you can imagine, you know, yik yak.
0: Uh, I can't. I, I right. can't with Yik Yak. Yeah. I mean, Twitter already has too many trolls on it, and Snapchat is already a little creepy. Mm-hmm. But Yik Yak is like only for racism. It's, I don't think you use it for any what other happens. purpose, right? It's where it
1: happens, and you know our president and, and the admission, administration has been very vocal on this. You know, don't sh- you know, shot like stay off Yik Yak because that's we cowards. You know, engage in um, uh, meaningful dialogue and debates. Um, and so, you know, while all this is happening, right, there's a public... When I found out that, that two students were involved, I didn't know the names of them, um, I just found out the day that there was actually a public comment session for for students that wanted to talk, wanted to talk about this to the Bowdoin student government. So I showed up to this one of these meetings, and that's where I think I, I had enough. And I, I called out for action, and I said, um, I said... You know something has to be done about this. I'm not sure if it's now, tomorrow, or next week. But I, I want uh, I want this this assembly to write proceedings for for impeachment or outline so, something that would that's really going to hold future actions accountable for. Um, that there there should be some sort of a set of consequences, especially for all of you who who are voted to represent us, um, when when you contradict to what you stand for, um, and. Next you know, um, three members from the assembly ended up drafting articles of impeachment, and the ball began to get rolling. <laughs> Meanwhile, you know, there's this national tension that's coming, and and that happened because some student from Bowdoin, a sophomore whose name was revealed afterwards, I'm not sure if it was unintentional or intentional, but submitted an anonymous post to Barstool Sports, um... And Barstow Sports has this thing. I don't know what that is. It's it's a, it's what the name implies. Uh, it's, uh, it's it's a block essentially for what you would call a borough. Um, um, is this
0: a national thing?
1: It's a national thing, and and they have this this column called, excuse my language. It's called the Pacification of America. Oh, so it's this type of thing. Yeah. Okay. And and this guy submitted a post to to that right. saying. The pacification of Bowdoin uh, and how our freedom of speech is being suppressed. And, I, oh, and that's, that's, the, that's yeah. like
0: the ultimate troll move. It's yeah. like, I'm going to be super racist, and then someone's going to be like, you know what, you're going to be racist, and mm-hmm. I'm going to hold you accountable. And it's like, but my free speech is being violated. And right. then the victimization narrative starts. Exactly. Man, this is textbook. This is, yeah. And is this how this moment got pulled onto the kind of national scene?
1: That's where it all catches fire. And But what that what that post did is it skewed everything. Right. right. They submitted a picture of kids, you know, four of them standing together, faces uh, blurted, uh, but but they're wearing these very small, tiny hats. And somehow that justified, you know, why this was blasted. Because of the why- size of the
0: sombrero? Yeah. Like, this is just making me sick right. to when, listen to. When
1: I have other pictures.
0: Right, which, I'm sure.
1: Which, by the way, you know, uh, the closest friends of, of the people involved sent me the pictures because mm-hmm. they, they they found it um, hypocritical, of the, mm-hmm. the assembly members, where I saw, you know, mustaches. I saw the Mexican tapestry. It was just right. outrageous. But, of course, you know, that sets the ball rolling. And next thing you know, you have National Review. Yes. Catch up on it. And they're the ones that reveal the person. Um, Got it. And so now that person is kind of forced to acknowledge what he did and come out and write a post for the Bowdoin College newspaper, in which, and you know, to sum it up for you, he basically said, "Look, I'm from a suburb in Massachusetts. Um, uh, I, I went to a predominantly white school. Um, I, this is where I come from. I, I was, this is this was, this wasn't my choosing. Therefore, people need to understand where I'm coming from. And essentially, you know, justifying his actions. Um, but by that point, you know, Washington, the Washington Post writes a right. column or an op-ed." It wasn't even it was an op-ed, someone's point of view, based off these previous details and, and really that's where that's when the alumni get involved and mean things are said. Um, there is another very similar to Barstool Sports another blog. You know I'm not even gonna say their name because I'm not gonna I don't want to give mm-hmm. them any attention, but they target they go ahead and target the people who have who have been speaking against this individually. Um,
0: Were you a target in this?
1: Yes, because my college newspaper would write, you know, every mm-hmm. week what, what's going on, and they would talk about the, the students that are, that are voicing um, concerns.
0: How does that feel for you? Because part of me feels like, oh, you've been through so much more than this, like, garbage. <clears throat> and on the other hand, you know, you're 22 years old, and you're just saying, please stop being racist. Like, I'm not just asking you one thing. And then you become the target of the vitriol of this audience. Yeah.
1: It was that and and definitely, you know, trying from my background because along with the freedom of speech card that people play all the time is, you know, this is, you're not ready for the real world.
0: Right. Oh, I that, know. Like that. you are just so, yeah, like you don't know what's going on and you can't handle your life because right. you don't like racism. But like, oh, this kid doesn't know. And you're just probably like, oh, let me tell you.
1: Exactly. And so I'm just like, you know. I, I, I want to dare someone come tell me that because <laughs> I, I come from the real world, right? And yeah. I, I tell students, you know, if, 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 if a group of white, very privileged students were dressed as as quote-unquote Mexicans and drink tequila, you know, in the neighborhood where I'm from, people would react very differently. Yeah. Um, you know, and not in the respectful manner that we're acting. Just basically asking people to respect where we come from and mm-hmm. really just, just, you know, People can hold there are a million themes that people of parties people can hold. There's um, so many fun themes so many fun things You can
0: watch television you can watch <laughs> scandal, you can have pies. Right, right. you can just socialize right. without being racist. You can just sit and have a cocktail. I do it every weekend when I have when I do something social I do I manage to do social things all the time without being racist. I don't know why other people can't do it.
1: That's, that's, that's the bottom point. And, and, um, it was for, I couldn't, it was, it seemed so simple, right? And what was just something very profound and, and kind of surprising was that it really took, you know, the, the three assembly members went ahead and, and draft the articles of impeachment this leaks to the newspaper, the Bowdoin College newspaper. All of a sudden, the whole school knows. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, there's a call to action on Yik Yak. Right. You know, and, and, and the next public comment, the whole school shows up. Right. Whereas in the past, it was just a group of students of color who were just, you know, fantastic characters. Attending the educational sessions, doing all those things. All of a sudden, the whole school's there. Uh, and and that was a very interesting moment because it's, it really, it took the, the possible impeachment of two students to get everyone there. And
0: they weren't going to be expelled.
1: And they, were, they weren't going to get expelled. They were just stepped down from the assembly because of mm-hmm. the damage you've done. That, mm. that was it. Um, it was a basic thing to do, just accepting your responsibility. And so people were were there, and people it was going back and forth. And really, you could see the tiny corner of us. I, was, I Actually, I got there a little bit late, so I was standing in, I guess, the group where I shouldn't have been standing. Uh, so when I spoke, there was this picture that was snapped, and... Um, where I am um, like speaking and everyone, you know, because I'm in sort of the opposing side, people are just like looking at me like, what is this guy saying?
0: Well, let me ask you this. So, so this is fascinating to me because when you walked in, mm. you were like dressed in internship dress. You're very professional. And so I, I imagine that you are that the misreading of who you are and where you're from happens a lot either in this space or another space. I mean, you look like every other privileged kid who yeah. goes to a fancy college. Yeah. And so, when people bring those assumptions mm-hmm. about you, how do you even mediate these, assu- like, what, do you want to just be like, oh, you have no idea? Or do you like, fine, you can think whatever you want, I'm gonna keep it moving? Because I think increasingly, as you move in these different spaces, your story is so clear front and center in your heart mm-hmm. and in, in, in your life, but what other people see is so different. Right. Or what people want to see. I mean, to hell with them, right? People right. want to see
1: what they want to see. Right. I, it's definitely, it's code switching. It's mm-hmm. sort of what I think I've learned um, growing up in South Tucson, um, who you're around, um, how people judge you by first impressions. Um, and then going to college uh, at a place like Bowdoin, I really had to, you know, because I struggled with both being that outsider. So I had to, learn the ins and outs and see how people dress and, and to you know, on the one hand me trying to feel like I belong in mm-hmm. this space, but at the same time resisting that. Um, yeah. and I didn't I didn't real, I didn't I didn't feel comfortable until maybe sophomore spring when I said mm-hmm. when I said, you know what, I could just dress however I want and that that's all that matters. Yeah. Um and for me that was, you know, if you ask you know, any student of uni, it would, they would tell you that uh, I'd like to wear Jeans and a tucked-in shirt. That, that's what I wear, um, and and that's that's what I felt comfortable with. Um, but here in D.C., right? It's 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 strange how it's strange how you know how you mentioned that that you know people who get to know me would never sort of get to see um, or won't won't understand without getting getting fully to know me. You know where I come from and what I've been through. And that's very, um, both eye-opening because throughout college there was this article that was published, um, about my family, uh, it went on NPR and, and the school did something about it, um, but where they discussed my family's situation mm-hmm. and when it made, when it's made public all of a sudden, you know, the whole school knows that, that, um, How did that feel? It felt strange. And, and to the point, you know, where all of a sudden they're like, oh, this this person who we thought was probably privileged because how he dressed and how he looked, light skin, um, you know, comb, hair to the side. Um, we had no idea that, that our very own peer at a place like Bowdoin in Brunswick, Maine, is going through something like this, right? Because in the news and all that stuff could feel so distant, right? When we refer to these issues by the numbers, mm-hmm. we're alienated um, from what's happening. And and I think for many people, this was the first time where they're engaging with, wow, this is what's happening uh, all over the country. Um, and for me personally, it felt weird because I knew that now something that I wanted to keep a secret mm-hmm. um, was how, out there.
0: How do you control that? Because one of the things, I don't know if you remember this from when you, you after, when we met at Truman Camp, mm-hmm. we do a panel about identity, and we talk about, like, how when you win a prestigious award, everyone starts hijacking your story, mm-hmm. and you don't even know who they're talking about anymore. Right. right? Right. Like, in many ways, I mean, you're definitely an incredibly admirable person that I think everyone should look up to and worship. And at the same time, right, you're like, I'm Bill, who, likes something of them awkward, and then I have to, like, do this, and mm-hmm. I'm the guy who, like, calls my little sister. Like, when that story starts to kind of lead, how do you take that back, because I think it's something a lot of very talented students of color go through, right? Like when the communications office gets a hold of who you are, and then mm, it, it gets yeah. weird.
1: Yeah, it, it, it got weird, and um, I, tr- I try to stay grounded. Um, I try to see the positives in these stories that were coming out. You know, I always made sure that, that they ran the, the stories by me first, and, and had my input in those stories and mm-hmm. really talked about, you know, if they're going to talk about my accomplishments or the award that I got, I want them to also talk about why I got the award, right? And the stuff that I've been doing, um, the immigration activism, the the stuff at the border, the, the you know, the the tragedy and, and the crisis that's happening in southern Arizona and how policies are creating this, right? So I, I, I made – I essentially made them mm-hmm. – um, Shed light on these issues, and I I really took each of these moments as a way of promoting my own agenda and and really informing the public. Both both at Bowdoin, but then on the on the other side, right? Um, you had you know NPR and, and these other mediums also going in, and and for that, that was that was a moment for me to. To again, and especially in the time we're living in, where there's a lot of sort of anti-immigrant race uh, racism yeah. uh, and and discourse, uh, tried really to humanize um, this this issue and and put a very a different spin on it and why this is ha- why why we need immigration reform and why this is happening um, and 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 the 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 damage it's doing to children like my little brother um, and so I took those moments as a way of. Um, informing the public and and making sure that the communications office just didn't do it for their own benefit, um, but seeing what the positives that can come out of this, and and essentially you know things, there were things that came out of this that I thought would never come out of like what, you know for instance, uh, besides basically be- besides the basic gist of public awareness, of the issue, um, two you had I had. People messaging me on Facebook, emailing me, saying, "You know what bill? I actually um uh, both my parents are here undocumented, and your work and where you've what you've gone through and where you're at right now give me hope, and they inspire me to also keep pushing, right and those were moments where where I felt replenished um, um and 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 then I saw that there was a, an extra layer of meaning to doing this. How did you talk to your mom about your graduation? You know, well, um Bowden actually streams the graduation live.
0: Oh, did she get to watch? Yeah. Oh my God.
1: Um so I the night before I was speaking to her and her neighbor, who was a, a US citizen but lives in Mexico and and knows some English and, and knows how to use the internet. My mom cannot use the computer any technology. And so I'm speaking to both of them and I'm saying all right, this is the link. You know, go Are to this. Are you trying
0: to think about like the Spanish word for streaming?
1: Streaming, yeah. I guess. <laughs> I'm like saying, a- a link, I you link, you know, um, and I'm saying, you know, at this time is when the the video should start playing. Just just go to the link and be patient and doing all that stuff over the phone. Um, and and they're like, they they said, all right, we got it. This is you know what I kind of cross check. I was like, what do you see at top? All right, Bowden. What do you see at the on the right? What tabs? All that stuff. And and I. I had faith that uh, I was hopeful that the next day everything was going to work according to plan. Um, And I remember calling my mom early in the morning um, to make sure that uh, just to get her blessings and and really um, um, making sure that everything was set up in place. And there's a three-hour difference, right? So it was Mm -hmm. very early on our side. Um, But sure enough, I went through the whole proceedings (laughs) The graduation, and after everything was done, I get a call, um, and it's my mom, and she says, "I saw you, you know, I I saw you, I saw you give your speech, I saw you get your diploma, um, and and I, that was very exciting, you know, yeah." Isn't
0: really it beautiful? I, I I wish
1: someone could like. Oh gosh. <laughs> I wish someone could take a picture of my mom watching. Yeah. Um, because that's I uh, was fortunate that my mom got to see it. My dad, unfortunately, wasn't able to mm-hmm. see it. He was in Tucson and in uh, the month before he had spent, uh, he was in a, a nursing home because um, he had just um, gotten um, a bladder infection and a kidney failure and all that stuff. So the plan was to bring him somehow to Maine. Um, fortunately, he wasn't able to come. He had to stay home. Um, and, and so I can't wait for me to go home and show him the diploma
0: and, and show you- him the video. So exciting. Yeah, And so, Bill, I'm going to end this beautiful conversation mm-hmm. with the one question I ask everyone on the sure. podcast. If there's one thing you wish you could have told all your professors when you were in college, what would it have been?
1: One thing I could have told them? Um, to just really take the time to, to um, get to know us, I think. Yeah. Um, you know every student has a unique story, and you know behind the the combed hair and, and the <laughs> whatever you know hipster glasses and the tucked and shirt, um, there's a story. Yeah, um, and and we won't get to know that story until we sit down and really start asking questions. You know behind the the incorrect grammar and um, you know, improper language, we. I used or others use, uh, in, in the day to day, there's a background to that, right? Especially at places like Bowdoin, where we assume, um, as soon as I get to that place are at, at the same, um, equal, uh, and playing field. Um, there are stories to these, to these instances. And I think taking the time to listen and getting to know each other, uh, can help shed some light and how to approach, um, assistance and help and mentoring
0: thank you yeah thank you Marcia. thank you for visiting office hours office hours a podcast is a production of dr Marsha chatlin and alex tyson the views expressed on this podcast are those of the speakers and only the speakers visit office hours on the web at www.officehoursapodcast.com on twitter at office hours pod on instagram at office hours podcast on Facebook at Office Hours, a podcast. Tune in each week on iTunes and Acast.